You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, This is the chapter that was wonderfully read by Shirley Kaminar earlier in our service. We'll be spending our time in this chapter of Scripture this morning. Today, we're continuing our series on gospel foundations. Now, up to this point, we've identified beliefs and practices that really any Bible-believing Christian could get behind. Things like the centrality of prayer meetings to the life of the church, Things like the need to pursue humility and to express that humility in intentional, faithful service of other people. Things like like making sure that we're singing not just about our experience of God, but singing uh, the word of Christ, which is the gospel. We want songs to inform um, what we think about God and how uh, he has made a way for us to relate to him in the first place. It's really amazing, you know, this morning... I was listening to some worship songs with my kids. Well, actually, just with my boys. Uh, Nina and Lily were both still resting in bed. So we're just having breakfast. All the boys are around the table. We're listening to worship music. And Benjamin, my four-year-old son, says, Daddy, why did God make Jesus the king of kings? <laughs> I mean, what a wonderful question. And he got that question from the songs that we're listening to. I mean, how, how cool is that? We, we want to devote our time of singing to the singing of sound doctrine to the glory of God as he has revealed it in Christ. We've talked about the practices of sharing evidences of grace, how we want to not only express our gratitude for one another, but help each other see how God is at work in the lives of those who are around us. We've talked about how we want to be a church that is awed by God, that that we never get bored of the vision that God has given us of himself in scripture uh, as fully revealed in the gospel. We want to be a people who are revealing Christ as our lives are constantly, progressively being sanctified in holiness as we become more and more like Jesus. And we've talked about wanting to become a church that is expecting the spirit, that the spirit would, would continually fill us and empower us for bold witness in our communities. Now, none of this is controversial. Whether you are a regular attendee, a member, or newer to our church, you've probably been able to get behind what we've said so far in this series and say, amen. You've been able to nod your head and say, say I, I, I love that, I support that, I want to grow in that. Not, none of this has been controversial None of it has really been new. We've been talking perhaps about some things that, that may have been new applications or practices um, of, of commonly held beliefs, but none of it really is new. Well, I need to tell you that this morning, that may change for some of you. Today, we're going to be talking about something that is quite controversial, Today, you may find it a little harder to nod your head in agreement because we're going to be talking about something that not, is not only a little controversial, but for some people is quite controversial, and that is the gift of prophecy. It's the gift of prophecy. Um, for those who aren't familiar with kind of the lingo, um, 
you could generally speaking, I mean, there are exceptions and generalities are helpful, but they're also unhelpful in some ways. You can generally break up uh, Christian churches into two categories. On the one hand, there are churches that would be calling themselves cessationists, cessationist. They are, they are churches that believe that the gifts of the Spirit, as revealed in the life of the early church, they have ceased to exist. There are, there are non-miraculous gifts that continue, uh, but there are gifts like the gift of healing, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy that have ceased to exist. And let me say that I have deep respect for many uh, pastors who are cessationists. Many of them are very influential teachers and preachers, people like John MacArthur. Or in Toronto, uh, friends like Paul Martin and Tim Challies. We have friends who are cessationists and they hold reasonable views in that position. Okay, But the other half of, of, of the picture are churches that would be called, generally speaking, charismatic. And uh, I know there's a lot of baggage uh, involved in that kind of terminology. But generally speaking, those are churches that believe that the gifts of the Spirit, all of them as revealed and practiced in the early church, uh, revealed in the New Testament, uh, they continue today. People have gifts of healing. People have gifts of tongues. People have gifts of prophecy. And on this end of the, the equation, we have, we have uh, people who are part of the Reformed world who would hold that view. People like John Piper. People like D.A. Carson, people like Wayne Grudem, and, and their views are also reasonable. Um, there are reasonable people who disagree on this issue, which is why it is controversial. And so let me say at the outset that, that Sovereign Grace Church believes that all the gifts of the Spirit continue today. None of them have ceased. They, they may come in different degrees and concentrations and, and come in different manifestations around the world and at different times, uh, but that's up to the Spirit. The Spirit apportions to each one uh, individually as He wills. Um, our role is to pursue and to pray for those gifts and to entrust the results to God. Uh, we, so we fall on this side of the spectrum, not on the cessationist, but on the charismatic side of things. I need to tell you that my, my objective, my goal in this sermon is not to defend fully the charismatic position, okay? That's not what this sermon is about. My, my goal is much simpler because of the limited time that we have. It is to examine this one chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, to understand both what and uh, how the gift of prophecy is meant to apply, how it is meant to... Um, serve a role in the life of our churches, how it is meant to be put into practice in our corporate worship. There is so much more that we could say about the spiritual gifts. For example, our text is going to be talking about the gift of tongues. I'm not going to be talking about that today, um, partly because we don't have time for it, but partly because it's not as important as the gift of prophecy, as I think you'll see as we study our text. There's so much more that can be said about this topic. We want to narrow uh, the, the, uh, the ambition of our goals today by saying we just want to see what this chapter says about the gift of prophecy. Second, I, th I think we need to recognize that, that this issue about the spiritual gifts is not a salvation issue. Uh, it, it's not even a, a fellowship issue. I believe that people who can believe different things about prophecy and about the spiritual gifts 
and yet still be part of the same church. I find John Calvin's example actually in this regard very instructive. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he addresses the gift of prophecy because in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about prophets. And so Calvin is wrestling with with what this office is and what prophets are called to do. So he gives a kind of a, a... uh, a definition of what he believes prophets are. I'll, I'll invite you to look that up yourself. All of Calvin's commentaries are free online if you just Google it. Uh, but then he says this. He says this. He says, if anyone is of a different opinion, I have no objection to his being so. That is, if someone has a different opinion than me about what prophecy is and who prophets are, I have no objection and will not raise any quarrel on that account. For it is difficult to form a judgment as to gifts and offices of which the church has been so long deprived, excepting only, this is very interesting, that there are some traces or shadows of them still to be seen. And so we see that Calvin actually himself acknowledged that the gift of prophecy continues today. That's very interesting. Um, Though he had to qualify that by saying, well, it's only traces and shadows Um, that are still to be seen. The important point for us, however, is is I want to note John Calvin's uncertainty about what the gift is. And that uncertainty led him to to give and to have a generous spirit towards those who may have a different perspective. And that's the kind of heart I want to encourage us to have towards one another as we talk about this controversial subject. We want to have a generous spirit we want to recognize that it not only is it not a salvation issue, it's, it's not a gospel issue. Um, the fact that we're talking about it in the Gospel Foundation series shouldn't uh, imply to you that this is a gospel issue. We're trying to show you how the unique values and practices of our church here at Sovereign Grace connect to and come out of the gospel. And so, I mean, people could fail to practice sharing evidences of grace and yet still be wonderfully mature believers who encourage others and, and who are faithful believers. Uh, these, are, these are practices that we want to show you, uh, to some extent, characterize who we are as a church, and we want to show you how they are rooted in the gospel. And so with all that being said, it's time to turn to our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And today, rather than address our text, because it's quite large, there's a lot of content And there's a lot of content that we're actually not going to talk about very much, especially relating to tongues. Um, We're going to kind of draw principles out of our text so that we can just focus on this one gift of prophecy. So we're going to start by thinking about what prophecy is not. What prophecy is not before we turn to what prophecy is. I think it's important to start there because I think uh, many of us come with some preconceptions or assumptions or perhaps bad experiences or even good experiences of what prophecy is, we need to remember and to study what prophecy is not first. Okay, first of all, prophecy is not scripture. The first thing that we need to note when we study our text is that when we talk about the New Testament gift of prophecy, we're not talking about people who are speaking words that are on par with scripture. There are some who fear that one of the dangers of prophecy is that it will undermine and diminish the sufficiency and the authority of scripture. 
And I agree that that is a very real problem, unless you acknowledge this first point, that prophecy is not scripture. I believe, uh, and I, uh, maybe some of you have had this experience, um, the gift of prophecy has been exercised in churches or in denominations that do not have a very high view of scripture. And they do not have a very um, strong commitment to a doctrinal heritage and foundation. And in those kinds of contexts, when people start saying that they're a prophet or they're speaking a prophetic word, what ends up happening is that they give a word of God that undermines and contradicts the word of God. And, you know, at, at the best, what happens is that God's people are misled. And at worst, what happens is a new cult is created. There, there is a real danger there. But I believe that the Bible makes a clear distinction between the New Testament gift of prophecy and prophecies that became scripture. There, there's the New Testament gift of prophecy, and then there are prophecies that actually became scripture. Yes, some prophecies became scripture, but it does not follow that all prophecies are therefore scripture. We see that already in the Old Testament. As just a, a simple example, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, you remember the prophet Samuel has encountered Saul. He's not the king yet, but he's been told that he's about to be the king and he's been anointed. And, and Samuel then gives Saul a number of signs uh, that are going to take place over the next few days that will assure him that he truly is called by God to be the king of Israel. And the first, one of the first signs that Samuel gives him is that uh, while Saul is walking along his way, he's going to encounter a group of prophets and they're playing instruments and they're prophesying as they walk. And that's exactly what happens. Saul encounters this group of men who are playing harps and tambourines and, and lyres, and they are prophesying as they speak. Now, here's the interesting thing. Are any of the words of those prophets recorded in scripture? They're not. We don't know what they said to lead them to be designated to be prophets. And we don't know what they said as Saul encountered them um, uh, as, as he met them according to Samuel's word to him. Samuel's prophecy was inscripturated, but the word of these prophets was not. And then as, as Saul encounters them, the, the Holy Spirit fills him and rushes into him, and he ends up prophesying as well. That's what scripture tells us. And yet we are not told uh, about a single word that he said as he was prophesying. We see the same thing uh, happening in many different instances in the Old Testament. But let's, let's just turn to the New Testament now. We see the same thing happening in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 21, we're told about Philip the Evangelist. You'll remember him. He's, he's one of the seven kind of proto-deacons. He's filled with the Spirit. He's, he's very wise. He's one of the heroes in the book of Acts. And in Acts 21 verse 9, um, the, the, the writer of Acts, Luke, says, He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They prophesied. He doesn't say they thought they prophesied. Um, uh, people thought that they prophesied. They prophesied. He is objectively announcing that they, are, they were speaking prophetic words. And yet, like those prophets in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we are not told at all of the words that they said. Their words were never inscripturated. Their words never rose to that level of authority. Prophecies do not always carry scriptural authority. In fact, 
I believe that the New Testament gift of prophecy never results in words that carry scriptural authority. We see that in our text. So in in chapter 14, verse 37, Paul writes this. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. What's happening here is that Paul is giving commands to the prophets. He he is commanding them and they are not commanding him. He, He stands over them as an apostle with the authority of God himself. And he is writing down the very commands of God while they are not. These prophets could not respond to Paul by saying, well, God speaks to us the same way that he speaks to you. So we don't have to listen to you. He may give us different instructions um, that, uh, that deviate from the instructions that he has given to you. We're going to follow the word that God has given to us. That's not what they say. Instead, Paul says, if you truly are prophets, if you truly are spiritual, meaning you truly have the Holy Spirit, then you will acknowledge that the things that I am speaking are a command of the Lord. The New Testament gift of prophecy does not result in the creation of scripture. Second, and this is related to the first point, uh, but it's an extension of it as well. The New Testament gift of prophecy does not result in authoritative statements. It does not result in authoritative statements that that have authority over the people they are spoken over. The prophets were not able to command people to do anything that was not in Scripture. We see that in verse 29, where Paul says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Let the others weigh what is said. That's very interesting. The Greek word for weigh here means investigate, or judge, make a judgment of the prophetic word that was spoken. When a prophet speaks, Paul is saying that that the others, which likely refers to the rest of the church, are to judge what is said so that they can determine what is good and what is not good, what is helpful and what is not so helpful. Paul actually says something very similar in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, do not despise prophecies, But test everything. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The the, the pattern in Paul's writing in scripture is that prophecies are to be weighed. They are to be judged. They are to be tested because they may contain some good and they may contain some not so good. Now, think about the nature of a command, Commands fundamentally need to be obeyed. If, if we expect commandments to be weighed and not obeyed, that, that, that rule, that principle has lost the essence of a true command. Commands are to be obeyed, not weighed. If you are driving along and you see a, a, the light in front of you go red, uh, you have to obey it. Uh, As soon as you start weighing it, hmm, should I stop or should I not? You've stopped treating it as a command. But, but, 
here in verse 29, Paul is saying that prophecies are to be weighed. They are to be judged. You do not need to obey them. You need to judge them and discern what is helpful and good. We are to discern what to do with them because they are not commands. They carry no authority. If someone were to say to you, I have the gift of prophecy, and I'm telling you that God is calling you to move to none of it, you would have no obligation under God um, to obey that word. It is not an authoritative statement. You can weigh it. You can, you can listen to it. You can try to discern whether that's indeed what God is calling you to do. But you do not have to obey it. Listen, every Christian only has one source of authority. One. It's not prophetic words. It's, it's not even the things that your pastors say to you. The only authority that binds the conscience of the believer is Holy Scripture. And pastors have authority only so far as scripture gives them authority over people. We do not have any inherent authority. Uh, Scripture alone, sola scriptura. The, the, The scriptures alone have binding, authoritative, commanding authority over the conscience of the believer. No, no prophetic word. No matter how compelling or specific or powerful can put an obligation on the Christian that scripture does not. Prophecy is to be weighed, not obeyed. Scripture is to be obeyed, not weighed. The moment that we confuse the two, we mix them up. If we say prophecies are to be obeyed and scripture is to be weighed, we we have started down a slippery slope of not following Jesus, but following a religion of our own making. All right, scripture is not, sorry, prophetic words are not scripture, nor are they authoritative. Third, the New Testament gift of prophecy was never intended to be a dominant part of Christian corporate worship. Again, we see that in verse 29. Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. What Paul is doing here is he's putting a cap on the maximum number of people in the context of corporate Christian worship who were allowed to speak prophetic words. And that was because the Corinthian church was actually running the risk of letting prophecy and tongues and the spiritual gifts to dominate their meetings. We, we see a glimpse of that in the preceding verse in verse 26. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Paul's giving us a window into what uh, the Corinthian church was struggling with. Everybody was coming to their gatherings with their own agenda. They're like, I feel like the Lord has called us to sing this hymn. Well, I feel like the Lord has called us to sing this hymn. Well, the Lord wants to say this to us. Well, I have a word that's more important than yours, and he wants us to do this. Everybody was coming with their own agendas, but Paul wouldn't let that happen. He wouldn't let that happen. If people had prophetic words, they had to to do it one at a time, and they were capped at two or three because because Paul was zealous to guard what was always meant to be dominant in Christian worship, which is prayer and the word of God. Those are the two things that are meant to be dominant in Christian worship. And prophecy is meant to serve that rather than overtake it. Prophetic words are helpful, but they are not 
essential. We can designate prophetic words as non-essential services, okay? What is essential is the word of God and prayer. And, and, and that is why I believe some of the revivals in history past have been led by, by men and by churches and by leaders and by individuals who, uh, who were actually cessationists. They, they did not believe that the gift of prophecy continued today. And the Lord didn't need this gift to do what he had planned uh, all along. It is a non-essential service. You might be wondering, well, why, why do we do it then? Well, <laughs> we'll get to that later. Well, one more thing that prophecy is not. The fourth thing. The New Testament gift of prophecy is not disorderly. It is not disorderly. I don't know if you've had this experience or not, or perhaps you've just read about it or heard about it, but in some charismatic churches, uh, you walk into their assembly and it is just pure chaos. Uh, Everybody is speaking at the same time. People are running around the sanctuary. Um, Perhaps people are losing control of their bodies or their voices. Um, Well, we need to make it clear from our text that that that's not how the gift of prophecy is meant to operate. People don't go into a trance and start speaking uncontrollably because they've lost control of their bodies or their voices. In, In fact, they maintain complete control of their bodies and their voices. We see that in verses 30 to 32. Paul writes, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Uh, What we could see here is that Paul is saying that the nature of the gift is determined by the nature of the one who gave the gift. The nature of the gift is, is determined, defined, constrained, deployed by the nature of the gift giver. If the gift giver is not a God of confusion, then the gifts he gives will not result in confusion. That includes prophecy. No one should ever walk into a room full of people who are uncontrollably shouting out their own prophetic words without consideration of what others are saying. They are to prophesy one by one. This is a very orderly process that Paul is writing about. You can all prophesy one by one. If you're speaking and another person uh, believes that they have a prophetic word, then let the first sit down. Let the first be silent. You can shut your mouth to to make room for the second person who is going to speak. And and, and the reason for that is, is that Paul is showing us that the mere presence of prophetic words is not what is meant to be encouraging here. It's not the presence of the prophetic words. It's the content. It's what is being said. So if everybody is speaking at the same time, no one knows what the content is and therefore no one can be encouraged and the whole purpose of prophecy has been lost. We are meant to be encouraged by the content of prophetic words. And that means that prophetic words must be given in a clear rather than chaotic context. And so... If prophecy is not scripture, it's not authoritative, it's not dominant, it's not disorderly, then then what is it? What is the point? Why should we spend a Sunday talking about this and trying to understand it? And why should we as a church seek to apply it to our corporate worship? 
Well, the simple answer is that we cannot avoid something just because it has the potential to be abused, okay? We cannot avoid something that scripture calls us to do and to pursue just because it has been abused or it has the potential to be abused. If we followed that principle, then we'd have to stop reading and teaching the word of God because uh, that simple act has been abused all throughout Christian history and continues to be abused to this day. Just because it can be abused doesn't excuse us from seeking to faithfully practice what scripture has called us to pursue. And that, that is the case with prophecy. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's God's word to us. That, that, is, that is what God has communicated to us through his spirit, filling the Apostle Paul, captured within Holy Scripture. I want you to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And if we are to be faithful Christians, we will not weigh that command. We will obey that command. We want to be faithful to do that and be aware of the potential pitfalls. All right, so what, what is the New Testament gift of prophecy? We're transitioning, transitioning now from what prophecy is not to what prophecy is. First, prophecy is revelation. Prophecy is revelation. The simplest definition of the gift of prophecy is that it is revelation that is reported to the church. Now, before you say, well, doesn't that contradict what you said earlier on in the sermon that prophecy is not scripture? Well, hold on. We call it revelation because that's what Paul calls it in this chapter. In verse 26, again, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Okay, at that point, it's not clear that revelation is equivalent to prophecy. But then when you look at verse 30, this, this, uh, this guideline on how many people can be speaking and the nature of them speaking one after another. He says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. Scripture calls prophecy revelation. Now, in his book, um, by the way, if you just want to study more about this or you have questions about this, I, I highly recommend this book, Showing the Spirit by D.A. Carson. There perhaps is no more reputable, credible um, scholar, writer in uh, our times than Don Carson. Uh, he is respected across denominations. He is a scholar of scholars. When the scholars have questions, they look to him. That doesn't mean he's always right, okay? He's not God. Uh, he's not kind of, you know, our Catholic church where he's interpreting scripture for us. But he does, in his characteristic way, address this topic very comprehensively and very wisely. And if you're curious about what our church's position is on the gift of prophecy, um, I encourage you to read this book. Um, as I've been reading it to prepare for this sermon, I was just thinking almost everything that we want to be as a church when it comes to the gift of prophecy, it's, it's captured in that book. Uh, so Don Carson, he defines prophecy like this. Prophecy is the reception, that is the revelation, 
and subsequent transmission, that is the reporting, of spontaneous, divinely originating revelation. It is revelation reported to the church. Now, I want to address the concern that some may have that say, well, if you call it revelation, then aren't we putting it on the same level as scripture? Because for those who know their theology, you know that that Protestant systematic theology only has two categories of revelation, right? There's general revelation. That's what we see in creation, what God has revealed of himself in nature, in what we study, uh, in what we observe in, uh, in the created order. That's general revelation. And then there's special or spe- specific revelation, specific or special revelation. That's what God has revealed in scripture, we, we need special revelation uh, in order to understand God's plans of salvation. You, you won't learn the gospel by studying ants or by devoting your life to being an arborist. You need scripture to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. General revelation, specific revelation, or special revelation, we need both. But what D.A. Carson actually helped me to understand is that that those categories, as helpful as they are, uh, they can unduly limit what the New Testament writers were writing themselves. And I think if we study what the New Testament writers have written, we'll see that there's actually a third category of revelation. It's what we could call personal revelation. Personal revelation. And personal revelation has to be subject to special revelation It has to be measured by the standard of Holy Scripture, but there is personal revelation going on as an ordinary course of Christian life. Let me just give you a few examples. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And listen, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's the same word there. The Son is revealing himself to people on a personal basis. That's not, he's not talking about nature and he's not talking about scripture. He's talking about a personal revelation in the heart of individuals that turns them from being unbelievers to being believers. Then in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter two, uh, early on in the book that we're studying here, Paul says this about the gospel. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. And if you know the context there, he's trying to explain why some people um, hear the gospel, they they read the the truths of scripture and they they reject it. They they call it foolishness. He says, well, these things, they have to be revealed by the spirit in the heart of the individual. There is a personal revelation going on. Then in in Philippians chapter three, Paul again writes, let those of us who are mature think this way. He's been talking about... um, laying down everything for the sake of pursuing Christ. And if, any, if anything uh, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He was expecting that God would, would reveal to the individuals more and more of his truth. That is apart from general and specific revelation. God is still in the process of revealing himself and revealing his truth to his people. He, he's doing that uh, when you receive preaching. I mean, I'm not telling you anything that you can't read for yourself in the scriptures, but, but God has ordained 
that some of the personal revelation that you're receiving through the Spirit in the Word is delivered to you in the act of receiving gospel-centered preaching. God is revealing himself and his truth to us in preaching, and he is is revealing more of himself and his truth to us in prophecy. That's what prophecy is. It is is under scripture, but it is nevertheless a personal revelation. And so the question is, if prophecy is revelation that is reported to the church, what is it that is being revealed? What is it that is being revealed? Most of us probably think that it's details about the future, right? I mean, that's in popular culture, and it's actually quite a common uh, version of prophecy in the scriptures. It's predicting future events. It's present revelations of future realities. But I think we need to know that that is not always the case. Let me give you a couple of examples. So, you know, the story in John chapter 4, when Jesus encounters the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, uh, you remember they have this kind of initial awkward interaction and the woman is kind of joking with him and not taking him seriously. And then Jesus says to her, he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands and the man that you currently have is not your husband. You remember that? Then do you remember what the woman says in response? She says in John 4, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You are a prophet. Not because of what Jesus said about her future, but because of what Jesus said about her present. Likewise, uh, and there are many examples of this, but let me just give you another example. When Jesus was on his way to the cross, and he is uh, suffering, he is being beaten, there's a moment in which he is blindfolded. And his captors start beating him. And what do they say? They say to him, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? Prophesy. There was clearly an understanding in the times of Jesus that prophecy was not just about future knowledge. It was also about present knowledge that was divinely revealed to the individual. Now you may be wondering, well, what's the point? What's the value in someone telling me something that I already know about myself? Well, I mean, the short answer is this. It gets our attention. It gets our attention. You know, four years ago, our church had the opportunity to be visited by a small team of individuals from a sister church in Philadelphia. And each person on this team Uh, had what we believe is the New Testament gift of prophecy. And at that time, I was uh, was Pastor Tim's Padawan. And uh, uh, my responsibility that weekend was to go around, um, hear what people were saying, that members of this prophecy team were saying to individual people in our church. And I would write it down. I was like the the scribe, the running scribe. And uh, uh, these are people who had never met people in our church. They'd never, um, they don't have a relationship with them. Um, they, they're not reading their blogs. Um, they're, they're meeting them for the first time. And as I'm going around writing things down, I just realized, uh, how do these people know so much about this person? I mean, I went back and read some of my notes and they, you know, they're saying about Steve Kaminar, 
Oh, you are a man who, who takes things apart and puts them back together. You, you understand how things work, how they're built, how to make them more excellent. I'm like, they didn't know that Steve was a carpenter, you know, a master carpenter who excels at that kind of thing. When they, when they turn to, to the Wong family, to Joelle and Karis Wong in particular, they were saying, you know, you have a gift of music. And I see you, you playing at a keyboard and, and singing for the glory of God. I mean, how did they know? They, they didn't know these things about them through human origins. And so often what I would witness is as these people were speaking, as they're just telling people what they already know about themselves, um, these people who are receiving these words start breaking down. And they start just weeping because they realize that that God has given this person this knowledge about them, about who they are, what they like, what their passions are. And, and it was a communication of God's divine care for them. And it got their attention. And then, and then what, the, what, what the members of this team would do was they would just give some encouragement. And perhaps some of it was predictive, like the Lord is going to send you overseas. Or um, you know, the Lord is going to use you in these specific ways. And it was, way, it was weighed, it was considered, it was judged. It, it did not have to be obeyed. But, but that, that's the purpose of present revelation, of words that are spoken into our lives that we already know. Let me give you a, we're quickly running out of time. Um, I'll, I'll skip my personal example, but I do have personal examples. I'll tell you about them another time. I want to go to the second thing that the, pro, that, that the gift of prophecy is. It is encouragement. It is encouragement. We see that in verse three. On the other hand, Paul writes, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Prophecy, the the heart of New Testament prophecy is to build people up, to encourage them and to console them. It isn't about predicting their future. This isn't fortune telling. This isn't staring into their crystal ball so that you can know exactly what's going to happen in your life. The purpose of New Testament prophecy is to build people up in faith, hope, and love. There may be predictive prophecies, but even them, even even they, their purpose is to build people up in faith, hope, and love. You know, I met a, I met a young woman a few years ago who had received, not, not someone in our church, <clears throat> who had received a so-called prophetic word from a friend. She had just been married. And this friend who was in her wedding party said, your husband is going to die within the first 10 years of your marriage. Now, this young woman, this poor woman, she didn't know how to process this. She ended up believing it. And what ended up happening was she spent the first years of her marriage uh, grieving for the loss of her husband. And when she brought this to my attention, I, I told her that there were two main problems with this so-called prophetic word. The first is that it was being weighed in the, outside of the context of the local church. This, this, this young woman who was speaking this word was, was not under the authority of a local church and that word wasn't being weighed with the help of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But the second more fundamental problem with that was it was not spoken out of love. It was not encouraging at all. It, it, was, it was having the effect of tearing this young woman down and, and blackening the first experiences of marriage. And that is why, listen, 
this is perhaps one of the most important things I'm going to say in this sermon. That is why 1 Corinthians 14 comes after 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, as we know, is the chapter on love. And uh, the reason why Paul is, has put it there in the middle of this discussion about spiritual gifts is he's saying love is the more excellent way. And so if you pursue the spiritual gifts, even if you practice them faithfully, if you have not love, you are but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You are nothing. And what you're doing is destructive. We are only to pursue the gifts to, this, to the extent that we are pursuing love so that when we exercise the gifts, they're being exercised in love. Prophecy is revelation. Prophecy is encouragement. Thirdly, prophecy is witness. In verses 24 to 25, Paul writes, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, you will worship God and declare that God is really among you. We, we want prophecy because it builds up the church. But we also want prophecy because it is a witness to an unbelieving world. Uh, that, that's what happens actually in John chapter four. We go back to that interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well. You remember what happens after he, he teaches her about the nature of true worship. She ends up running back into her town declaring, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The, 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 the pro prophetic word opened the door for her to receive the gospel. And then you remember what happens next. John tells us, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the savior of the world. My friends, all people need to turn from unbelief to belief, from doubt to faith, from worshiping idols to worshiping the one true living God through Jesus Christ is the word of Christ. All people need is the word, the gospel that, that Jesus has come into the world to die for our sins in our place, to wash away our guilt, to take the punishment that we deserve upon himself and, and to respond to that by the spirit with repentance and faith. That is all people need. They do not need prophetic words. But sometimes the Lord uses prophetic words to open the door, to give you a platform, an audience with those who are to be saved so they would hear the gospel with softened hearts and opened ears. And so where do we, where do we start? If you, if you have questions about the nature and practice of this gift, I just encourage you to keep studying ask questions, uh, reach out. I don't know. I don't have all the, all the answers. All right. There are people way smarter than me who disagree with what I've just said. And I don't have answers to everything that they, they, they say. Um, but on the other hand, I think that there are some pretty smart guys who believe in what I just said as well. Keep studying, keep asking questions. We want to be faithful to scripture and not conform our Christian lives and experience to what tradition we have come from. I want to give you three points of application. If, you, if you're the kinds of per, kind of person who says, 
hey, I want to grow in this. I want to perhaps even practice this myself. Three brief points of application. First, prophecy is to be pursued by all, but not practiced by all. Prophecy is to be pursued by all, but not practiced by all. I mean, Paul's made it clear that he wants everyone to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that they may prophesy. He, he says, I want everyone to speak in tongues, but even more that you would all prophesy. It's something that we should all want and pursue. But that doesn't mean that we're all going to receive the gift. Some of us will pursue and practice. Others will pursue and not practice. He says that basically in, um, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29, Paul says kind of rhetorically, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? The obvious answer is no. Not all of you are teachers and none of us are apostles uh, and not all of us will be prophets. Prophecy is to be pursued by all but not practiced by all. You can want the gift, you can pursue the gift, but it is up to the spirit to give the gift. It is the spirit to apportion to each one individually. The Bible doesn't command every Christian to prophesy, but it does command every Christian to pursue the gift of prophecy. And so I encourage you to pray for the gift. I encourage you to grow in your desire for the gift. Pursue the gift, pray for the gift, and then leave the results to the spirit. Second, prophecy is primarily to be practiced under the authority of the local church. This is to address the problem that I told you in that story about the young woman who had just been married. We, we do not need loose cannons kind of running around saying, I believe this is what the Lord has said for me to you. And you're just left by yourself to process that and to apply it to your life. We don't need that. We, we need these words to be given in the context of the local church so that qualified elders and the corporate wisdom of the church can weigh it and judge it together. And that is why if you've been part of our services, when we've been able to meet physically, we have a microphone set up at the front of the sanctuary uh, that is usually empty, but once in a while, we'll have someone come up to that microphone and share. And, and they'll share, sometimes it's, it's a picture, sometimes it's a, it's a verse, but it's always what, what the person believes has been revealed to them by God for the good and encouragement, consolation, building up of the church. Now, before they do that, they have to approach one of our pastors, Pastor Tim or myself, and vet it with us. They need to share it with us so that we can engage in an initial weighing to see if it's heretical and to see whether it's timely. Is it the right time for this to be said? And there are many times where we have to turn people away. But there are other times where we let them speak and then we weigh it together. That's what we're doing. We, there is this opportunity for two or three to come and speak for the upbuilding encouragement and consolation of the church. Lastly, prophecy is meant to point us to Jesus. Prophecy is meant to point us to Jesus at the end of the day, this is not about the gift of prophecy. It's not even about the Holy Spirit who gives the gift of prophecy. It is about wanting to know Jesus more. Uh, what did Jesus say about the Spirit in John chapter 14? He says that the Spirit will bear witness about me. The Spirit will, be will bear witness about me. Uh, that, that is the Holy Spirit's delight. Not to shine the spotlight on individual prophets, 
not even to shine the spotlight on himself, but to shine the spotlight on the Son, on Jesus Christ, on what he has done, on what he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, in who he is, so that we would worship him to the glory of God the Father. That, that is the purpose of all of the gifts of the Spirit, so that we would know Jesus more. The Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. And so we want the gift of prophecy because we want a fuller, deeper revelation of Jesus himself. Let's never forget that. The spotlight is not meant to be on the gifts or on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's delight is to put the spotlight on Jesus himself. And so as we pursue the gift of prophecy, let us grow in the knowledge and wonder of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, there are many things that we do not understand, many things that are outside of our comfort zones, um, many things that we perhaps have never experienced before. Father, our desire ultimately is to be faithful to your word, to conform our beliefs and practices to Holy Scripture. And if this is what you have truly taught us to pursue, this gift of prophecy as we've understood it today, we pray that you would pour out this gift on our church, not so that we could be known or so, so that something amazing could happen, but because we want the church to be built up. We want a fuller revelation of Jesus and how he is still at work in our lives. And so we, we ask, Father, for more of the Spirit. We ask for more of Jesus. We pray for the fullness of the gifts that Christ has purchased and delivered to us by the Spirit so that we could flourish and thrive as a church. Help us, Father, to do this wisely. Help us to do it together. Help us to do it under your word. And uh, may you be pleased to use us, your broken vessels, receiving these pure gifts. Use us to bring glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.